and welcome to the Culture File Weekly, your handy cut-out and keep selection of the week's Culture File moments. And this week we're in Galway for the city's Winter Games, otherwise known as the Talca Visual Arts Festival, where we'll hear about the Irish outsider artist who did most of his work in an English asylum. In Limerick, Earthy Improvisers Pesht's new collaboration is called Writhe. Dan Colley's Lost Lear mashes up puppets, people and Shakespeare to explore dementia, and Paddy Woodworth is here with a new old book for the Naturalist Bookshelf. But we begin in Galway. The curator for this year's Tulka, Irlani Fierish, has created a festival with a strong focus on experiences of disability, including a look at the work of J.J. Began, a Balna-slow-born artist and sculptor who spent most of his life in Near Thurn Mental Health Hospital in England. Irlani Fierish spoke to Culture Files Neave Daly about creating Tulka 23. There has been so much beautiful, complex, compelling, intimate, tender work created on disability and health and medicine and access in Ireland and internationally since the pandemic and before, that I felt like it was a real opportune moment to showcase that really strong art. I'm Irla. I am a curator and writer who is interested in questions around medical history, disability justice, and accessibility. So I write and I curate and I also perform and make some films around those topics. I'm generally concerned with the history of medicine, but also thinking about the connections between disability and landscape, and particularly thinking around how carceral institutions or medical institutions shape places and communities and how that informs our contemporary view of disability and disability rights. I'm from Galway, I'm from a town, a little village called Kilcolgan, and that's quite close to a place called Kilcornan, which has a very troubling history of violence against disabled people. Um, and growing up in Galway, I heard phrases such as to go to Slow," and that was a shorthand for someone who was using the services of the hospital, which closed in 2013, but it also represented a general mental health crisis or someone engaging with psychiatric services. So this has been with me for a long time. So looking deeper, Ireland had one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world in the 1950s and the largest proportion of that population was in mental health institutions. And that was for many reasons, as a form of social welfare, as a form of control, as a form of incarceration. So this is a particular carceral legacy in Ireland. The title of Tolka is Honey, Milk and Salt in a Seashell Before Sunrise, which is a mouthful. But that title comes from a book on folk cures and folklore by Jane Wilde. Jane Wilde was Oscar Wilde's mother and she was very interested in Irish folklore. And she describes this folk cure for what she would have described and what would have been described at the time as madness. There was other cures that involved exorcisms and and quite um, violent processes. But this felt like a poetic and gentle way of introducing audiences into ideas of disability and landscape. The festival is also dedicated to J.J. Began, who is a Ballinasloe 
born artist who lived in Netherin, a mental health institution in Surrey, England, between 1920 and 1940. The most work we have from him are on lavatory paper, also on toilet paper, using charred matchsticks. And he drew on, on, on that lavatory paper. Were these materials used because that's all he had access to or were they artistic choices? Um, and he made drawings for calling home and naming himself as an artist and a sculptor. So it's really about thinking about a connection to home and recalling home and access to home as disabled people. Anna Roberts-Gilvey will be presenting Ridgewood's Sick Centre, a fictional sick centre for artists and musicians. They will be displaying kind of imaginary archive in the hospital, um, which will have breathing and music exercises that patients and visitors can engage with. And this will be accompanied by an audio documentary of Ridgewood's Sick Centre. And it brings you on a journey through this sick centre, which kind of feels like what you'd want to hear from your sickbed and is a very gentle experience. Weston, heads down medicine, trombone case in hand, red jacket slung across her arm, warm spring day. We are in the Tulkamain Gallery on St. Augustine Street in Galway City Centre. So we're in a large um, emptied out office space on street level which was Galway's former Dole office. Yeah, it's had a lot of lives. Um, it's, a, it's a bare kind of concrete floor um, with a lot of white pillars. So we're heading to the back of the gallery where we've installed a beautiful large screen that is showing Rousba Chappé's film, Forgetting is the Sun, that features um, footage of Rousba's grandmother's hands while she's taking a memory test for dementia. And that's intercut with archival footage from films from Iranian and Moroccan resistance films. And these films deal with histories of memory and remembering. So by contrasting footage of Rusba's grandmother taking a memory test with films that resist state-sanctioned histories, uh, Rusba resists state-sanctioned histories of memory. And thinking how those things are constructed, how memory is constructed, how that could be false or altered, um, and thinking of different regimes of memory um, and how we remember ourselves and our history. I wanted to create an opportunity for people in Galway and artists to think about how carceral legacies can impact our own view of ourselves and where we call home. I hope that it is a tender, compelling, intimate and gentle experience. There's a lot of artworks that feel human and familiar and involve conversations around access but also loved ones and family and the support and intimacy and it's a real beautiful festival if I say so myself. Irlani Fierish there, curator of Tolka Visual Arts Festival, which is happening in Galway at the moment. And there's a screening of Abandoned Goods, a film exploring Britain's asylum art programme, including the work of J.J. Began at Balnaslow Library on Friday 17th of November at 2.30. Details of all the festival tours, talks and special events from tolka.ie. 
Paste or Worm are a group of musicians and artists based in Limerick who leverage handmade software and more familiar instruments to cast brand new sounds. For Light Moves Biennial Dance Festival in Limerick, Paste are bringing the noise in a wriggly back and forth collaboration with dance artist Avino D. The result is a performance called, obviously, Writhe. Culture Files Louise McMahon tunnelled into Limerick's dance quarter and through the gates of St John's Church to the hall where the magic happens. Yeah, I guess improvised music with electronics and like there's a mixture of everything really analog, electronic, computers. Yeah, it's just an exploration of having fun improvising really at the end of the day. I guess when we were thinking about it, like Pace, <laughs> Oscoelia means worm and it also has kind of a, a mythological context in terms of like these types of worms that exist in Irish folklore and mythology. Keen. For me, like Ride, you know, is linked to this kind of worm image that we've been using to describe kind of how we work because, you know, writhing is amorphous. It doesn't have a form. Keen McGurk. And we're constantly moving and making together. So what am you I... Know, so I felt like Ride. Playing? Just kind of fit. Mainly just playing bass through different effects pedals. Lots of delay and a bit of fuzz and some other kind of effects. I've got a bit of a clarinet as well. I sometimes play a sax. Uh, don't really know how to play it well, so I kind of just try to make atonal noises out of it and see how that sounds. The pace, like the mythological creatures is the thing that an image that always comes back to me as well it's like first of all it's this kind of like demony serpenty thing but then it takes on the forms of like human bodies so you have this kind of mad augmented kind of creature coming out and then it like goes into something else or it could just be disguised as a human and then you start to see its creatureness come out I guess it's open to interpretation. Like, it's about, like, I don't know, twisting, distorting ways to move, ways that, like, influence your movement. And then I was doing a good bit of stuff there, like using a handheld radio and putting that that up to the pickups on the bass and then just going through different stations and seeing what kind of noises I can get out of that. Trying to make it like quite percussive. Because a, a bass instrument is a percussive yeah, instrument. Totally, yeah. I try to use it like that and just kind of get grooves going and lock in quite a lot with what he's doing um, with like the uh, kind of drum loops. I'm using a software called Max MSP and there's a looper in it which was mainly made by my friend Michal, who's also in the group, and also another friend, Walter. So this is the Max MSP patch that you're looking at here. It kind of looks a little bit more complicated than it is because really the idea is very simple and it's basically that I'll chop up a whole load of samples that I like or that I think might sound good and then I feed that into it you start and to I'll see tell it a few things that I want from it like how long I want the loop length and certain things like that. Creatureness come out. And then it will spit back out random parts of the things that I feed into it. You're connecting boxes there on your screen. Yes, I'm mapping it here to a MIDI keyboard, a very small, cheap MIDI keyboard that I have here. And I have parameters like volume and and reverb settings match these knobs. This cushion is, is very, very comfy, so do you always sit on the ground? Will this be the situation? I always sit on the this ground. This is part of, of being impatient, is being a worm yeah, and being on the ground. Just lying on the ground, every gig we do now. Yes. I perform at voice mostly. I have a guitar with me here yeah, as well tonight. Um, kind of going for a kind of a cyborg type thing, so I'm putting my voice through the computer. 
using the program Maximus P, which Dahi mentioned before, Dahi McCrohin and Michal Keating. And basically I've been kind of custom building this software to be able to play around with uh, my voice and my guitar in just a bunch of different ways to try and stretch more timbres and different sounds and weird loops and grains and stuff out of it. I'm recording my voice in real time through a microphone and I'm feeding it into my computer. One of the main thing I use is I use is a granular synth, which is kind of grabbing tiny little snippets of audio and spitting like hundreds of them back out so it kind of gives a kind of cloud of sound kind of effect and uh, I have an iPad in front of me where I can control about 50 different parameters so I can get a load of different sounds out of it. Do you want to really quick just give me an example of what you just said? Yeah sure. So talk us through what's happening while you do it. One, two. Um, so at the moment, at the moment I have a, what's called a ring modulator on the voice if I take that off, you'll hear my voice a little more normally. There's a tremolo on it and a slight delay. I might just show you the, the grains. One, two, 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 ha, and I can also record little loops and do weird little stutters, stutters, and different stuff like that as well. So, so she's got a ticket to ride, then she don't care. Right. So we're going to take a little bit of a walk outside the building that was once Dagda Dance Company's building. <laughs> now it's Dan Slimrick. Uh, my name is Cayman Walsh. When you say the process is, is about opening the artist outwards and welcoming successes and failures, can you explain that to me in terms of what's happening in your music? When you improvise and when you don't have improvisational cues or a structure, things kind of come together and fall apart quite naturally. And that's how we work and that's kind of why we enjoy doing what we do. It's about listening and relating to each other. So sometimes that, always, that doesn't always go well. Especially in front of an audience, there's risk in something not working, uh, in inverted commas. So yeah, I think that openness to failure is really important and that's kind of, I think, some of the energy that we manage to kind of make in performances or working with each other, that it, it might not work. We're pretty comfortable with that. Members of Paystand, dancer Avino D, ending that report from Louise McMahon. Next on the Culture File Weekly, the therapeutic possibilities of King Lear. Director and writer Dan Cully is perhaps best known for his shows for young audiences, featuring unexpected meetings of puppets and people. In Lost Lear, he introduces us to Joy, a former actor living with dementia, being cared for via an approach that helps her live inside an old memory, in her case a memory of performing King Lear. Cully's hit Dublin Theatre Festival 22 show is currently on an Irish tour, so this time we'll visit again the blasted heath near Milltown, where Collie and Cast brought the memories together. Right, Liam, shall we take it from the top? Understudy, you be Cordelia. I'm Dan Colley, I'm the director of Lost Lear, and we're here in a rehearsal room in Milltown. Lost Lear is 
kind of like a version of King Lear. It's told from the point of view of a person with dementia. And she's undergoing a particular kind of dementia care where her carers and her family uh, keep her in an old, familiar, happy memory uh, in order to facilitate her. Um, And in her case, that is an old performance of King Lear from when she was younger that she performed in. But uh, in truth, uh, she might have picked King Lear because she is some, like Lear, some unfinished business with her own child. Could I try? Who is this? He's... Oh, the understudy. The understudy, yes. We're rehearsing in the understudies today. Please? I think we should. While we have the understudy, we should rehearse them in. Is he off book? He's not off book yet, but... Please, uh, I'm still learning the lines, but I'd love to give it a go. This is based on um, something that is used in, in therapeutic settings. Yeah, that's right. There is a particular form. Uh, there's a few different forms where you're asked to identify a particular theme or scene or memory. Um, it's described in Oliver James's book, Contented Dementia. And it is, uh, you know, it's used by a lot of different people in a kind of an ad hoc way. Um, uh, it's a little unusual in this part of the world, but there are some people in Oxford who use it as a kind of a wraparound therapy. But to a certain extent, I think everybody who cares for somebody with dementia finds themselves wrestling with some question of what amount of truth do I tell? And to some extent, everybody lies. I'm afraid it's just not working. Look, okay. we said we'd try it. He's going to have to learn You're the lies. Okay, You're right. You're right. Okay. I first came across this kind of care when I went to my grandmother's home where there was a part of the corridor that had shop fronts like a film set sort of stuck on to make it look like a streetscape from the early 20th century in Ireland. Apparently it's a fairly regular part of dementia facility design is that they'll have some kind of familiar setting. So I read about more of it and some homes go and have train carriages with film screens, video screens that show passing landscape. And so I started to learn that there is a kind of a, an emerging sort of practice that asks the carers and the people around the person with dementia to go with the person's idea of reality rather than trying to reorient them to the reality that we're in with varying degrees of success and it works for some people and it really doesn't work for others. Oh you kind gods, cure this great breach in his abused nature, the untuned and jarring senses or window, wind wind up of this child changed father. So please your majesty that we may wake the king, he hath slept long. Is he arid? Arrayed. Is he arrayed? Aye madam. In the heaviness of his sleep, we put fresh garments on him. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang. Thy medicine on my lips, and let Dang, this you're kiss. breaking up the lines. I can't bear this. Maybe just let him finish this small bit. You'll be in now in a sec. I've been working with a group of people with dementia from a very early stage of the show. So the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland put us in touch with the Irish Dementia Working Group. And these are people I've been asking questions and uh, and having conversations with from a fairly early stage. Also, people who are family carers of people with dementia, the Dementia Carers Campaign Network. Some of the carers have been in to see the show already and we've already got some feedback on that and made several adjustments. But my hope is that people with dementia will be able to come. And like a lot of things when it comes to people with different neurodivergence, there are ways of making the show introducing the show, 
having feedback after the show that just allows that access. So even though it might be intense and disorientating, there are ways to put rails and guardrails in there and uh, you know firm points on the ground that people with dementia or people with different uh, different neurological needs might be able to watch other, what otherwise might be an intense and disorientating experience. But at the same time, the, the show is made in a way to put the audience at times in the position of somebody with dementia. I thought it was interesting the way she forgives him. Interesting? Yeah. Yeah, just making an observation there. It just seems a bit of a stretch, don't you think? <laughs> I'd like to get Mr Shakespeare on the phone and ask him about that. <laughs> Liam has been telling me about it, the play. I don't know it very well. I don't know it. It's very famous, obviously very well thought of. So I thought you, Joy, might have some insight into why she, Cordelia, forgives Lear. You know, you've met one person with dementia and you've met one person with dementia. That's what they say. For some people, they know well that the, the, the person that they're looking after, could be their mother, could be their partner, is the kind of person who would have wanted to go with the flow, who would have wanted to play a game in which we are living in an old memory or an old fantasy. And there's some people for whom they just go, you know what, my mother would want me to tell them what this is. And my mother wouldn't want me to say oh, your parents are doing fine. They would want to say, look, your mum and dad died a long time ago or whatever it is, whatever truth that they might have. You know, I've certainly heard people who said, that's my mother's grief, you know? I can't be the one to take that away from them. And so everybody finds their own journey through it. Well, what did we think? I thought that was good, Joy. I thought that was great. Great. Dan Colley there and the actors were Venetia Bow, Peter Daly and Manus Halligan. Lost Lear is at Project Dublin Saturday with further dates at the Ramore Theatre Virginia, Mermaid Bray and Dreach Blanchardstown before finishing at the Civic Tala on the 28th and 29th of November. Will it hold is the question finally as Paddy Woodworth has another volume for our ideal shelf of nature writing. But luckily it's a small volume Paddy has for us this time, though as ever its import is anything but. Leonard Nathan's 1996 meditation on his own existence at the end of a pair of binoculars, Diary of a Left-Handed Birder, is the latest book to squeeze in between the classics on the Naturalist bookshelf. Is it any wonder... The poet Leonard Nathan asks that popular opinion regards birdwatchers as a little mad. He raises this question after describing how he and a group of fellow watchers have risen from a comfortable dinner to spend ever chillier evening hours standing up to their calves in marsh water in search of a yellow rail. This bird, a relative of the corncrake, is distinctive only for being indistinguishable from its shadowy habitat. When the watchers finally flush it, they barely get a glimpse of a tiny bundle of brown feathers before it disappears into the darkening gloom. Nathan had hoped for a much better view, for what he calls the heart-stirring sensation that goes with a clear, vivid vision of a bird. Nevertheless, he writes that he is weary but exultant. I have experienced, if only partially, something extraordinary. I have experienced a rare and real presence. Nathan is keenly aware 
that this statement resonates with echoes from religious texts, though he is not a conventionally religious man. His Diary of a Left-Handed Birdwatcher, a small but almost perfectly formed book, is a series of brief, playful, but very telling meditations on a single question. Why do birdwatchers watch birds? It's significant that Nathan, a Californian, calls himself a bird watcher rather than a birder, an Americanism that has spread across the globe. For him, birders are fanatic listers, so busy ticking off a species on their highly competitive inventories and moving on to the next one, that they hardly seem to see actual birds in the here and now at all. Whereas bird watchers, in Nathan's view, are reluctant to lower their binoculars from a particular individual bird. Their concentrated focus derives, he argues, from a need to make sure of the identity of the bird, yes, but also from a strong desire to prolong so special a seeing. Not the consummation of a hunt, but an epiphany, a direct encounter with the meaning and mystery of otherness. Okay, that is a bit of a mouthful, and isolated like this, it may make Nathan sound precious and pretentious. On the contrary, however, he constantly questions his own experiences, and especially his desire, his need, if you like, to situate them in such a rarefied, almost mystical context. And he concedes that the birders he dismisses may have similar experiences, but just don't care to articulate them like this. He uses, as foils to any overthinking, the biting wit of tough-minded friends. One is an ornithologist whose experience of birds is rigorously filtered through the lens of science. Another is a fellow poet who can barely contain his contempt for the prettiness and daintiness he associates with birds, both in life and in literature. Nathan's wife plays an intermediate role, lovingly empathetic, but reminding him gently of the impossibility of explaining the mystery of his bird-watching epiphanies, a word he also defines, and James Joyce might have approved, as the shock of recognition. Nathan calls to his aid a smorgasbord of piquant literary reflections on birds. We hear from Gerard Manley Hopkins and from Sappho, from Goethe and from Valmiki, the author of the great Hindu epic, the Ramayama. Some of the writers Nathan calls as witnesses are entirely imaginary. He conjures up from his own recurring dream narrative a fictional 15th century Italian traveller who himself dreams of an Arab poet blind from birth whose lost masterpiece perfectly describes birds which have been extinct since the flood. But for all these literary and magic realist grace notes, this book always comes back to the core melody, rendering the experience of seeing actual individual birds. Nathan finds in them what he calls superfluous beauty, a phrase that captures an elusive element that evolutionary biology leaves out of its account of the world. At the very centre of the book, there is a long, lonely poem that opens with an elderly man rather like the 69-year-old Nathan himself, watching a bird 
he has spotted too late, vanish into the vast pallor of palpable distance. His state of mind shifts from sharp existential panic at the emptiness before him through recollection of the abundant joys he has experienced in the natural world to an acceptance that, waiting in solitude, an experience common to birdwatchers of all ages, is the one office that the old decently could do. Not for the first time. We find that the books we have taken down from the naturalist bookshelf are as much about our own human nature as they are about the natural world they celebrate. Paddy Woodworth there on Diary of a Left-Handed Birdwatcher by Leonard Nathan. And Paddy and the Naturalist Bookshelf take to the stage as part of Dublin Book Festival on Sunday, November 12th, when he, Lisa Fingleton, Anya Murray, Gwen Wilkinson and your host will be talking about the word wild and its changing meanings over time in writing about the natural world. That Sunday afternoon in the Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin in Dublin. Details from DublinBookFestival.com and we'll be recording the event for broadcast on Saturday 18th in the Culture File Weekly Spot at 6.30pm, which is the time next Saturday we'll meet again. Till then, bye now.